than truly serving the customer. That is always paramount. What technology you use is not paramount, but how you serve and solve the customer's problems is the main thing. Second thing is that you build something that pays early. And for me, that's been a key point in the validating that we're, what we're doing is actually making a difference and something that the customer is willing to pay for. Welcome to the podcast B2B SaaS CEOs with me, Joseph Olsen, as your host. I'm the CEO and founder of VAM that helps sales teams close more deals and book more meetings. The idea to this podcast was born because one of my personal goals is to be a world-class B2B SaaS CEO and therefore I need to learn from the best. And I want to take you with me on this journey. Hi, my name is Virpal Singh, co-founder and CEO of Digital Talk. You're listening to B2B SaaS CEOs. Hi and welcome, Virpal. Thank you very much, Joseph. Pleasure being here. How are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? It's amazing that I'm here with you. Being just able to learn from you with the journey you had done is super, uh, yeah, I'm super pumped up for this. So first thing first, who is Virpal? Please help me get the context of how you look at yourself. Wow, that's such a philosophical question, isn't it? That we're a cocktail of our previous experiences. I'll try to keep it short then. <laughs> Born and raised in, in Sweden with parents with a heritage from Punjab. Uh, from a very young age, had a huge passion for technology, uh, breaking up everything from bread toasters to washing machines to kind of see how they're working and, and trying to assemble them again, which seldom worked. But, but I did have a good time, learned a lot. Uh, another fun fact connected to that was I built one of uh, Europe's biggest websites for Indian dance music uh, until I was uh, very close to being sued in the early 2004-05 when, when copyright laws were coming out. So I kind of decided that might not be the smartest thing right now. Uh, eventually realized my huge passion for uh, health as well and, and the human body. Why do we yawn? Why, why does the body react the way it does? So it was a very obvious thing to kind of move on to medical technology, which is what I pursued at Karolinska and, and KTH. Uh, so so um, understanding that if, if we're working with pacemakers, why does the heart work the way that it does? So both having a look at the electro electric circuits of the heart as well as devices and circuit boards. Um, and then last year of KTH, uh, spent a year in Singapore where I kind of saw where the future was coming, how technology is going to be evolving uh, to shortly thereafter spend a year in Ethiopia uh, working at a cardiac hospital, uh, helping implementing routines, phenomenal staff there with clinical knowledge, but uh, <clears throat> being able to contribute with a little bit of uh, know-how from a Swedish perspective. Um, and it was a very humbling experience. I mean, we're all, we've all seen how, um, or we're all aware of how people in India or in Africa are dying because they can't afford treatments. And it's something completely different seeing it on, on your own in front of your eyes. Uh, people not being afforded uh, treatments uh, does something to you when you see that yourselves. So, so Ethiopia was, was a fantastic year, a beautiful culture, but also a huge boost of empathy before I came back and um, uh, started working in, in project management, did a few gigs in that, started my own company in that, consulting, 
And so now, you know, briefly, uh, I, I um, see myself as a product person, entrepreneur, family man, and trying to give as much as possible time at home, parallel to meeting fantastic people like yourself, Joseph. And uh, yeah, you covered so much. As I think we can, uh, you you covered basically almost so many interesting topics, uh, except digital talk. So, for the listeners, tell us what does your company do? Do the elevator pitch. Um, before I do the elevator pitch, I want to go into a little bit of context as well. I'm a very much context person. My following question is always why? Why did you start to get the context? But we do it the other way around today. Why did you and your co-founder start Digital Talk? Well, so we spoke a little bit about the empathy injection from Ethiopia. And I, I knew in, in that time, 2015, I'd just been to Silicon Valley for a few months before uh, for a research program. And I'd seen, you know, the Ubers and, and the uh, Snapchats and, and the Instagrams being founded. So I knew that I wanted to do something much more exciting than consulting, even though I had some fantastic experiences in that. Um, I also knew that what I wanted to do would be something that makes a difference. And 2015 was a very particular year. Uh, Sweden normally receives somewhere between five to 15,000 refugees per year. Uh, 2015, Sweden received uh, 160,000 refugees. That's a completely new order of magnitude that the country wasn't used to handling. And uh, public sector society itself was not prepared for it. And uh, when I saw this wave of individuals coming to Sweden who had been through a lot of difficult situations, um, there was one or two people at the Stockholm Central Station from the government, from Miguel Holmsvägen, to receive them. And it was obviously very overwhelming for them when a train of 2,000 refugees are coming. But the beautiful thing here was the amount of engagement and how many people really wanted to help out. There was 80, 90 other people who were there who turned up to meet these people, help them out with accommodation. This is also, to remind you, Joseph, this is also that time when this young boy, Alan Kurdi, his body floated up the Mediterranean. So people were really, really touched. You know, there were there were kilometers of comments on Facebook. I've got an extra cottage, place for four. I've got an extra bedroom, place for two. People wanted to help out. And, and so somebody's at the Stockholm Central Station arranging, you know, accommodation. Somebody else done a fundraiser for clothes. And I was there after work um, making sandwiches and preparing food so that people have something to eat. And that was kind of what made the entire system work. Because when there's a train of 2,000 people coming, there had to be somebody there to receive them. And what I noted was at that time was somebody stood up on a chair in this uh, ocean of people and yelled, hey, does anyone speak Arabic? And, you know, an hour passed, hey, does anyone speak Persian? And I thought to myself, there has to be a better way than standing up on a chair and yelling. And especially because as we approach the evening, you know, it's 10 p.m., most of the volunteers had gone home. There was nobody there from, from the government. And there's two or three volunteers there left. And then in one go, 800 people are coming off a train and there's nobody there or very few there to receive them. And I thought to myself, well, we might not be able to get people to magically appear there, but maybe somebody in another part of the world can help out with the languages and breaking the language barrier. And that was kind of where the idea came about. So I started looking, how does it work when a patient comes into a healthcare institution and doesn't speak the local language. 
And uh, I saw a very manual and cumbersome process where the clinical staff is calling up a interpretation agency, waiting in a queue 30, 40 minutes. Interpretation agency is then calling around for 40, 50 minutes to find somebody who's available. And all they actually come back with is a phone number. And, and then you have a doctor and a patient with a phone, uh, with interpreter with a phone. And that took over an hour. And I thought to myself, this is outrageous. We live at a time where at the top of a button, we've got a car outside within three minutes. Getting a phone number shouldn't take more than a few seconds. That's what we do, Joseph. Within a few seconds, we're arranging the language support. And that's been game changing for patients who are in need for care. For, for crime victims. And also, if you look on the other side, you know, these law firms, these, these uh, agencies that are able to help crime victims within seconds, this is game changing for them. So it's been very humbling working with something that's truly making a difference for a lot of people's lives. Yeah, you did the elevator pitch at the end here, so also. I'm not sure if that was as much of an elevator pitch as it was a story. And if we should now take a step back, how do you do the elevator pitch of Digital Talk then? Very, very simply, I, I speak about the need. Um, we connect individuals who are in need for language support within seconds with highly qualified interpreters and, and translators. One thing that uh, come to my mind when I heard the context uh, of the big problem, how it was solved for like 10 years ago, I think there is a huge shift today with AI. And I'm super curious to hear how, how you think in adapting your business for the customer and the whole setup with AI and digital talk? This is something that we're very, very passionate about. You know, technology has been paramount in everything that we do. And there's articles about us doing R&D in this space since 2016, 2017. So we're, we're very comfortable in this space, specifically because these conversations that our customers are having and our users are having are very high-stake conversations. You know, it's, it's whether somebody has lung cancer or pneumonia has such a paramount impact on what information the patient gets. Every single word that is used will make or, or differentiate whether somebody is sentenced as guilty or, or innocent. And for that reason, I think there is still a significant uh, time away, unfortunately, until AI uh, truly becomes at that accuracy level. What we feel very comfortable, though, with is that with that trust that we built with our customers, we will be the ones that are transitioning our customers to that technology. We don't see ourselves, our customers waking up one day and saying, hey, let's use Google Translate, which isn't GDPR compliant, which isn't quality assured. While for us, having that highest accuracy level is something that we're working with every single day to make sure that the conversations that we're having are accurately conveyed. Okay, so so uh, what I'm hearing is that uh, in a couple of years, once you, you have with your own tech and your own knowledge, feel it's more relevant enough, we'll implement more and more AI for your customers when it's in a whole different level that it isn't yeah, it basically isn't today and won't be for a while. Absolutely. And I think uh, that <clears throat> highly qualified interpreters, which we're using today, still will have a part to play in a lot of conversations. But in the conversations where that is not necessary, we're going to be the first ones offering the best service, best user experience in how to use this technology. This is not an AI pod, so I don't want to stay too much. I, I, I often, almost every episode now, take up some angles of AI because that is everyone's life today. Uh, and will be uh, at least uh, moving forward to uh, something I call five quick ones. 
And now you need to be quick. I will throw up a word and here we put the first thing that pops up, you need to say the, the first sentence. Uh, do you understand? Absolutely, let's go. Okay, language barriers. It's been broken. The life of being an entrepreneur. Exciting, but way too much to do. Your biggest role model. My spiritual mentors. Something that's keeping you awake during the night. How can we help even more people? And your happy place. Automating things. Being super nerdy. <laughs> uh, in our quick pre-talk, I know what's coming in the topic of your choice. So otherwise I would have like dive deeper in when you said your biggest role models. Uh, but now I, I, I guess I will hear more about that quite soon. Probably. <laughs> yeah, probably. So, so now I, I, we, we put period on the five quick ones and go to uh, what's one of the worst things you have gone through as an entrepreneur? Ooh, that list is very long. And, and especially given that there, it's very, very lonely at the top. And uh, that's unfortunately something that's spoken very little of. Uh, and, and I'm happy seeing more and more entrepreneurs doing that. You know, you've got everything from uh, co-founder fights with chairs being thrown at each other and, uh, and uh, to two very happy moments, of course, as well. But I would say among the worst periods would be uh, recruiting our management 1.0, our first management group. And, um, you know, seeing that a lot of the experiences that these amazing individuals brought along with them uh, was not in line with the phase that we were in. And what that means is that that knowledge, that experience, that advice that they come with is not applicable for us at our company. And it's, in fact, very harmful for us to do things which are relevant at a 200-people company when we're at a 40-people company. And then recognizing that this is a mishire. This is a mistake I've made. There's nobody else to blame. And, and th at that point... Um, thanking them for their contribution but first of all realizing that this is a mistake i've made and that the experience that they have is not relevant for us and our company and um, and the expectations that they are used to as well and i and i'm seeing this is is fairly common in a lot of startups that they overhire they hire way above what their need is they're hiring a vp at at a major logo or a big company thinking, well, this is going to resolve all of our problems. But what you actually need is a runner who is willing to run with you uh, and, and a generalist on an on early stage. And, and uh, you're getting a specialist who's, who's, who's at a team for doing those things. And then it's just the wrong phase. And, and uh, you know, terminating those employments is among the most painful ones. And, uh, or even recognizing that, that we've reached a stage where this is the unavoidable and the right decision to make. Yeah, but there was no throwing shares in in this man management. No, fortunately, no. That was not the case in the in the management terminations. But that that was more of a co-founder fights that we've had. <laughs> and uh, now we should actually tune over, not tune over. He will tune in to an external question from a person called Martin Bergqvist at Brain DP. This is Martin's question. Hi, Virpal. I know you've had a fantastic growth journey so my question to you is what do you think has been key for you to be able to go from five to over 300 million in five to six years 
And what do you think I should focus on as a CEO and a founder and a leader to be able to make a similar journey? I would say three things. Uh, number one, uh, regardless what role you're in or what kind of startup you are running or company you're running, then truly serving the customer. That is always paramount. What technology you use is not paramount, but how you serve and solve the customer's problems is the main thing. Second thing is that you build something that pays early. And for me, that's been a key point in the validating that we're, what we're doing is actually making a difference and something that the customer is willing to pay for because that's what companies should always be about. And I think number third is something I reflected a lot about is, especially in my role as a CEO, is also that question, what should I be working on? Should I be working with everything uh, or or what should be my, my focus? And it comes down to... Uh, my uh, co-founder generally uses the expression that kick with the strongest foot. And that means that do what you're best at and don't focus so much on, on growing your weak parts, which obviously they have to come to a hygiene level, but there is an area of excellence or genius that you can work on. And that is where you should be focusing on and everything else. Get co-founders, get staff, get get uh, talented individuals to help you out with everything else. But make sure that you work within your circle of genius. So you would say to Martin that if he, not like high level, like deep dive in these three topics and do it well over time with his business that hopefully solves a big problem, uh, he, he will come very far. I, I, I'm absolutely convinced that he would. Great. Martin, thank you so much for the question and Virpa for the answer. But now it's time for a topic of your choice. And uh, the only rule here, uh, Virpa, is that you need to choose something to talk about that's under the interest and that you feel passionate about. The floor is yours. Sounds good. Sounds good. As a lot of uh, your your listeners might have seen or reflected on is the fact that I, I wear a turban. And since I get a lot of questions about that, I think that's a very relevant topic to touch on. Uh, you know, the elephant in the room, so to say. <laughs> and, um, and I'm going to share a little bit about what brings me closer to it and what impact that has on me. And uh, giving a little bit of context, Sikhism, uh, the faith, that I adhere to was founded uh, in the mid-1400s. And the context was uh, India that is being conquered by Mughal rulers and a predominantly Hindu population, which is in a lot of these discourse and arguments with the invading forces saying, well, you don't believe in our God um, and therefore you will go to hell. And the other side, well, you don't believe in our God, so therefore you will go to hell. And the founder of the Sikh faith, Guru Nanak, the first uh, Sikh guru, uh, walks past this and notices this conversation ongoing and says, well, you, you do realize that God doesn't care at all whether you label yourself as a Hindu or a Muslim. God actually cares about how do you treat other people? How do you treat your peers? Are you in service of humanity or are you just there arguing and making life difficult for each other? And that's kind of a bit of a hallmark of Sikhism. There's a lot of emphasis on, on tolerance, respect to other faiths and other perspectives, even those that you don't agree with. 
and uh, something that very is is very strongly impacting the scene community is the sense of helping others so something that his father gurnanak's father sent him away uh, saying here's here's a thousand rupees which was a lot of money at the time do go and do a good deal bring you know bring some value of shareholder value of this and uh, he walks away and and sees a lot of poor people and um, he starts uh, preparing a lot of food, buying a lot of vegetables and fruit and serves them food and says, look what a good deal I made. I helped so many people get food on their plate today. So that's kind of a lot of the background why Sikhism was founded uh, with the aim of helping people. And that brings us to the concept of God, uh, which is very, very particular in the Sikh faith, which is a lot more Eastern in the sense that while in a lot of in the Abrahamic faiths, God is up there and and has created this world um, and is separate from the creation, within the Sikh faith, there is a transcendent God, which is separate, who has created the world, but who is also part of his creation. And what that means is that within the Sikh philosophy, the sense of a separate God is actually not considered as much as it is that God, the soul within each every human being is a part of that God. And the comparison that is made is that if God is the ocean, then that drop is within every one of us. And our aim as humans is to become one with God, to truly merge with God while we are alive and become one with God. While Buddhists might call that nirvana, others call it peace of mind, Sikhs call it becoming one with God while you are alive, because when you truly see it that way, then you don't see that in this podcast there is Joseph and there is Virpal. There is God speaking to God. And, and when you see it that way, that within every being there is God, then you can't treat anyone poorly. And that's a very fundamental part of the faith. Because when you truly recognize that that light lives within everyone, that you live at the best possible way. And for me, that's a very important part. So when it comes to running the company and, and bringing it back to this context, well, that's that spirituality, that sense of meditation, that sense of connectedness, that recognition that through the company, what we're doing, we're making a difference for so many patients, so many crime victims, and we're making a huge impact on the world. And every single booking that we get, we're helping multiple people, we're helping families. And for me, more than that, it is a sense of keeping a sanity in all of this noise, is being able to pull yourself out and living in the moment. That's what the Sikh faith for me is. I love that sentence because it's so much noise nowadays. We need to move on to something that's in every episode because that is one of my favorite, at least professional topics in the whole world. And that is go to market and go to market strategy. Yeah. I want to bring pick you now and hear about around five of the most critical steps regarding creating a strong go to market machine, according to you. Uh, absolutely, and I'm going to keep it super simple, uh, and and um, that is for me, or the recognition I've had through doing a lot of initiatives in the company as well, trying out new products, 
and whatever we whenever we don't do this uh, we we tend to fail in those initiatives and that is uh, number one talk to the customers number two talk to the customers number three speak to your customers and and number four then start thinking about distribution and product and and those things but number one is validating your concept with the customers how many customers do you what is the number you have seen that you cover enough this this is where the hunch comes in right i would say that the number or the quantity is not as relevant as the quality is this your core customer whose problem you will be resolving then what are you doing to resolve that customer's problem and then of course being a little bit Uh, cautious about things as well. Make sure that there is also a sense of commitment to doing that purchase. Would you buy this assuming we built all of this? Are you a decision maker? And all of those things obviously are very standard procedure in customer discovery as well. That who is the decision maker? Is this just one idea that somebody is having? Or is this a decision maker who is able or somebody who is aligned with a decision maker? But truly, so I, I wouldn't say that the quantity or amount of customers is actually paramount. It is that this is a significant problem that one, two, three different companies are talking about. If it's B2B that we're talking about, that that these are challenges that truly uh, they're they're suffering from and that they're willing to pay for. So we have talked to customers, we have done it, core customers, 10 core customers, but four of these uh, said, yes, we will pay X amount if you fix this and you have done the, all the groundwork, etc. And then you went on to distribution and the next step. What, 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 what is the next step here? So, so for us, the next step was building the product and making sure that we had, do have a product which is truly making a difference. Or I, I think the the article "Do Things That Don't Scale" by Paul Graham makes a lot of sense there because you do everything in your power to serve and please this these specific customers. And once you've done that, once you've built something that truly makes a difference, and where you now deserve distributing this to more customers. That's when you think about channels. And for us, that was uh, going towards both public sector and working with, with smaller enterprises. So B2P and B2G is our distribution channel and public tenders as well as, as outbound. But the, the channel came last. I love this part. It can't be said too much, frankly. Do things that don't scale. And, and then I put at first, because yeah, the end game, if you want to build something big, but at first... When you have found your customers, you have the data and talk with them, like you said, then you did you you did almost everything manually at the first site then at the beginning. Absolutely. I, I spoke to customers, I called up, I visited clinics, I visited refugee homes to understand their problems, spoke to them and, and as a technologist and slightly introverted, that wasn't really my area of expertise, but but it is what needed to be done and I knew I was onto something that could make a difference. And and for me, it was just, if I can make a difference, then I must. And that's truly something that, that came to me that I obsessed about this problem. Then you said, find the right channel. And then you said, outreach. And this leads me in to another favorite topic of mine, talking some sales outreach. Because I, VAM, with VAM, I'm building an outreach tool. So I'm always taking all every opportunity to collect interesting data points from smart decision makers. Uh, so talking some outreach, and if you don't, we spin it around now, not how you are doing it, how you preferred 
to to get an outage tools. What's the best outage you have gotten in the last quarter or year that really stand out and made you actually buy that service? So for me, the most interesting thing, which I still remember, uh, came by, uh, you know, although I'm digital and, and everything, it came through snail mail. I, I received, a, uh, it wasn't even a, it was a letter, but it was a small package. And I'm wondering what is in this package that I'm not expecting to get. And I open uh, the the envelope, uh, which it was packed in. It was a, a really thin package. And when I opened it, it just flipped up into a small house or something. And I'm like, what's going on here? And then there's this kind of all of a sudden there, there's a standing house with with whatever it was that they were selling. And I'm shocked. And I'm like, wait, what just happened here? One, I'm surprised at the at the kind of momentum in which it popped up. But also because I'm an engineering and a nerd, I, I obviously spent the remaining afternoon wondering, looking at how do they actually go about to build this? And yeah, I would say it was phenomenal. So for me, it was it's for me the most important thing is that that outreach is done in a very untraditional way, where you know I got it in my own time, where I actually sat down and gave it time, where where you know cold calling from SDRs when I'm out on the go, I'm not listening. I'm I'm not focused. It's not it's not what I'm looking for. And even if it was, that's not the right context. So for me, it was about getting it at a time when I was in that mental state of mind of curiosity. What have I received here? You know, Brex t- shares a story about how they would send out a bottle of champagne uh, whenever somebody's closed a Series A round to B to B customers who are st- startups or scale ups, and. They grew through that, you know, out of the the companies that they sent it to, 45% of those companies would, would meet up for a video demo about their product. 45% of those would actually, or I think it was 75% of those would actually then sign up to use their credit card solution. So it's about doing something creative. You know, they're a digital startup. But yet they send out champagne bottles and and something along the lines of 45 or 75 percent of the recipients would take a sales call with them then. And uh, and focusing on the digital talk then with your outreach, uh, what's what's your like best if you see the, the, the like best wow thing in your outreach process? What is that? Uh, I would say that we've done a few, and I when I realized the biggest conversion actually has been in the same thing. When you go out there, meet people, give them you know a, a small uh, token of appreciation for working with you or for considering you. So it's been a basket of candies and things like that, and it makes people really shine up because they're seeing somebody come to them to meet them and see them. So it's definitely been in the same uh, same kind of. Um, uh, on on the same token that being able to give something to somebody that makes them feel appreciated and seen. Okay, so you you have you didn't have them as customers. You have them in a dialogue. You you maybe knew each other a bit, but you just taking the time exactly yeah. and going there visiting. Of course, you know I was passing by, so I thought I'd come by. You know, doing that thing. And, and uh, you know, I accidentally had a cage with me with, with a bunch of candy. You know, <laughs> nobody questions when they get candy. They're just happy to get candy. And, and it really worked. Amazing. It's, it's, it's super funny and, and it's amazing the impact that it has. Uh, you shouldn't uh, underestimate the old school, traditional, classical marketing or sales 
exactly because they have worked before and can work again. Uh, uh, but okay, uh, we're probably need to move on uh, to the second and last external question, and this is from a person uh, Asis Yididi from Tellink, and this is his question. Hi, Virpal. What are the biggest challenges you face as you scale your company and how do you plan to overcome them? I think the biggest challenges a lot of us entrepreneurs face is relating to that the fact that we're passionate about making a difference, whatever that might be, or a product or bringing about a difference. We're not used to the, uh, you know, I didn't find the company to figure out how to make somebody who's upset about their uh, family situations, about how to make them happy. That wasn't something that we recognized would actually be one of the most important questions that we resolved. It is about seeing uh, how to make people feel seen and heard inside in the company and by their colleagues. And yet at the same time, in parallel to that, bringing in, you know, highest performing, bringing accountability in everything they do and all of those things, balancing those things, being an empathic individual at the same time as sometimes you're going to recognize, well, ooh, we made a mistake here. And and balancing that is definitely one of the biggest challenges. So uh, to resolve that, a largest amount of time that I spent is how do we train our staff? How do we retain them? How do we make sure that that we create a place where people enjoy being and where they grow or where they don't necessarily grow, where they're doing a work which is fulfilling for them, where they don't need to feel a pressure that they want to grow in their career, balancing that as well. And and at the same time as recruiting A-star players in everything we do. So So it's about balancing both things. Aziz, thank you for the uh, question and for the answer. And with that period, we are actually entering the roundup. This means we only have three questions left. And first thing here in the roundup, a book. What's a favorite book of yours? I'm going to go with uh, two books. Uh, one of them is a, uh, The CEO Within. Uh, which is a framework book about how essentially it's a cocktail of learnings from so many different other companies uh, boiled down into a booklet. So the CEO within is definitely one of my biggest tips and Amp It Up, phenomenal book about how to really bring speed into your organization. Uh, So really enjoyed reading that. You're talking to yourself, your younger self. If you would give yourself the top one to three things to think of that you now know that you didn't know back then. What would you tell yourself? Try out as many different things as possible because I had no idea that, you know, if somebody said, told me four months before I started the company that you'll be learning, you'll be working with languages. I'd be like, you know, that's ridiculous. I have no, I had no background in that whatsoever. And yet here I am, and I dared to make a bet in something where I could make a difference. Uh, so I would say try as many different things as you can, and that will give you confidence in in uh, pursuing new things. And it is one of the most important things that we as founders need to have, is building that confidence that we can do, do um new things and and prosper and and jump into different rabbit holes and and make a lot of mistakes and then all of that being able to recognize and well don't don't go in here this and that and move out again that gives you a sense of 
uh, ability to map out where am I where am I making unnecessarily journeys, but more importantly, what are opportunities that are out there? So I would say that the the key, the one most important thing is to try as many th- different things as you can, uh, and and don't be scared of making mistakes. Good. And the very last question then. And uh, now we are a bit more philosophical and spiritual. Life mottos. Can you share one of your favorite life mottos, Virpa? Say as it is. Don't hide anything. It does nobody a favor. Say as it is. Be compassionate and try to understand where they're coming from. But say as it is. And with these words, we put period here for today. And uh, I will thank you uh, so much in like 30 seconds, Virpa. But first, I shift the focus to you who has been listening. Two quick ones. Number one, don't be selfish. If you got value here, share it forward. Tell a friend, tell a colleague to listen to Virpal in B2B SaaS sales. And thing number two, press the subscription button. We have great guests coming here every week. And Virpal, a huge thank you for putting aside around 30 minutes together with me to help me, but most of all, the community to keep on learning. Thank you so much for having me.